What? 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 I know how we can run everybody out of Rock Ridge. How? We'll kill the firstborn male child in every household. Too Jewish. Shalom and welcome to the Two Jewish Radio Show with Rabbi Sam Kohan and Friends, a weekly serving of everything Jewish. We'll have a great hour together today of news, music, comedy, and conversation. Our guest this morning is Emily Bowen Cohen, Jewish Native American activist, author, and artist on her new book, A Member of Two Tribes. We'll also have a visit from our expert on the international Jewish scene, Tom Price. Please email your comments to us at 2jewishradio18 at gmail.com or visit us on the web at 2jewishradio.com. The opinions of the host and guests on 2Jewish are their own and not those of the radio station. 2Jewish is paid for by 2Jewish radio programs and podcasts, Tucson, Arizona. And now, here's Rabbi Sam Kohan and 2Jewish. Shalom. Hanukkah is just a week away, beginning next Sunday night, December 18th. The eight nights of Hanukkah represent an opportunity to renew our commitment to Jewish identity. And an interesting key to this festival is the time of day, or rather night. As you probably know, all Jewish holidays begin at sundown, but none are quite so night-oriented, not even Passover, as Hanukkah. Bringing light into this season of the shortest days and longest nights of the year, Hanukkah is that rare Jewish holiday in which nearly all the observances are after dark. Sure, it's Hanukkah during the eight days, too, but it's the magical lighting of Hanukkiot. Hanukkah menorahs, or candelabra, lit every night of this long festival, adding one more light each night that's central as an observance of Hanukkah. We are commanded to fulfill the great mitzvah of Pirsomet Hanes, publicizing the miracle of God's redemption at this time of year and those days long ago. And nothing does that better than lights burning brightly in the window, reminding us of the miraculous quality of God's redemption. Although considered a minor holiday on the Jewish religious calendar, in America, Hanukkah has become something quite major. In part, this is because of its proximity to other end-of-the-American-calendar-year holidays, you know, the ones everyone likes to celebrate, like um, Kwanzaa. But in part, it's also because Hanukkah is a festival that celebrates religious freedom, the right to worship God as we choose. Without the events we commemorated Hanukkah, the victory of that small Jewish guerrilla band led by the Maccabees over the mighty Syrian Greek army of the Seleucid Empire in the years 167 to 165 BCE, more than 2100 years ago, the belief in one God would have been destroyed and religious freedom eliminated. There would have been no Jews, which would mean, of course, no Christians and no Western civilization. And for that matter, no Muslims, since both Christianity and Islam are direct daughter-descendant religions of Judaism. It's a constant reminder that religious freedom must be protected, now as in those days. The story of that great revolt, catalyzed by the egotism of King Antiochus IV Epiphanes and his need not only be obeyed but worshipped, is an underdog narrative about how a group of Jews refused to bow down to an idol or surrender their right to study Torah and educate their children in belief in God and the moral and practical principles of Judaism. They fought and died 
and eventually triumphed. And when they recaptured the temple in Jerusalem, they cleansed it and relit the great menorah, dedicating it anew to worship and holiness. Chanukat Habayit, the very word Hanukkah means dedication. So when we celebrate this week eating anything fried in oil, especially latkes, the fabulous potato pancakes, by the way, I have a great sweet potato latke recipe, we celebrate something more than a children's festival. We are enjoying our religious freedom, which was defended and reestablished nearly 2,200 years ago by the Maccabees. And religious freedom for all religions is a great Jewish ideal worth fighting for in their day as in ours. To play us in this morning for Hanukkah, here's 613's wonderful parody Hanukkah song set to Taylor Swift's Shake It Off called uh, Hanukkah. Really fun. I'm feeling pretty great. Got lockers on my plate. I love this holiday. I love this holiday. And kiss the like candles one through eight And a new one every day I love this holiday I'm spinning dreidels Onions and potatoes Coming to my table Smells so good singing It's gonna be eight nights Cause we're counting up to eight, 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 eight. We're escaping off of faith, 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 faith We're gonna celebrate, brave, brave, brave His army was so weak But they still beat the Greeks Supply of oil wasn't great But a miracle took place It burned for eight whole days Burned for eight whole days So in December Take time to remember With four Hebrew letters Spinning round Singing it's gonna be Remember, Hanukkah begins sundown next Sunday for eight wonderful nights of lights and latkes, 
and lots of music. Join us at Beit Simcha, Be the Light, at our fourth anniversary, fourth night of Hanukkah celebration, the biggest night of the year, Wednesday, December 21st, 5.30 p.m. Go to BeitSimchaTucson.org to sign up for a fabulous, elegant evening of music, latkes, candles, song, and joy. Our guest this morning on Two Jewish is Emily Bowen Cohen, truly a member of two tribes, both Jewish and Creek Muscogee Native American, a comic artist and author, and a fascinating guest. Meet her when we come back in a moment here on Two Jewish. We are the soul of Tucson. We are your neighbors and friends. Our commitment to provide the very best relies on the finest products and services you, our community, has to offer. Together, we make Tucson thrive. When we win, you win. Casino del Sol, the soul of Tucson. Enterprise of the Pasquayaki tribe. Be the Light is coming up fast. The best Hanukkah party in southern Arizona features gourmet latkes, elegant appetizers, delicious drinks of all kinds, Hanukkah menorah lighting and songs, fourth anniversary cake and desserts, dreidel games, a raffle with fabulous prizes, elegant Hanukkah musical entertainment, and much more. Join us Wednesday night, December 21st, for a fabulous celebration of the fourth night of the Festival of Lights and Congregation Beit Simha's fourth birthday celebration. There will be catered food, fun, and frolic. Be the Light is the best way to rejoice on Hanukkah this year. Go to BeitSimchaTucson.org to sign up for Be the Light and make it a wonderful Hanukkah in person this year. That's Wednesday night, December 21st at 6.30 p.m. at BeitSimcha.org. Celebrate and enjoy, and this Hanukkah you can Be the Light. We are delighted to welcome to Two Jewish our guest this morning. Emily Bowen Cohen is a fascinating figure in the Jewish art and book and, well, the Jewish world in general. She grew up in a small town in rural Oklahoma and is a member very clearly of two tribes, uh, Native American and Jewish tribes. She has some extraordinary graphic books out. I don't know if we call them comics or graphic novels. Um, and has become a, an artist in residence and done a, a number of other things. Good morning and welcome to Two Jewish. Hi, good morning. I've had many people in my congregation that were uh, black and Jewish, um, Indian, that is from the subcontinent of Indian and Jewish, and occasionally someone with a native background, but it's not the most typical circumstance. Tell us a little bit about your background. Oh, sure. Um, well, I am... Gogi Creek, um, which is a tribe which was originally from what's now Georgia and Alabama, and through the, unfortunately, through the Trail of Tears. Back, back to Andrew Jackson time. Uh, yeah. Uh, we were relocated to Indian Territory, which is now Oklahoma. You grew up in Oklahoma, Native and Jewish. So my tribe, Muskogee Creek, through my father, um, he and my, my mother's Jewish. So... They met when he was getting his medical degree at Harvard, and she was an undergrad at Wellesley. So very un, not bright, under-accomplished parents. Well, you know, my father was actually recruited to the medical school um, after during the Civil Rights Movement. And so he actually was the first Native American person to graduate. From Harvard Medical School. Yeah, there was wow. another Native student there. Yeah. So, yes, accomplished, but 
not without so, a lot of help. Yeah, so I, I'm sure, although I might note that you also went to Harvard. I did, yes. I followed in his footsteps. <laughs> so they met in, in Boston, I assume? Yes, they met in Boston. My mother's roommate, Navajo, and I believe they were, gonna, they were going to um, an organization, like a civil rights meeting or something. And so she invited my mom to come. And that's where she and my dad met. And without going too deeply into the past, uh, how was that marriage accepted on both sides in those days? My grandmother on my mother's side welcomed um, non-Jewish marriages, I'd say. Uh, I, I think they were a little bit surprised because, you know, on the outside, his background was so much different. Sure. We told you to marry a doctor, but not necessarily one from the Creek tribe. Yes, exactly. Well, and he was going to go back and work for um, our tribe. Right. So that was going to be a big move for her eventually. Uh, but, you know, as these things are, everybody got to know each other better. Uh, <laughs> we, they eased into it. Um, and it was actually my, my father's mother's first time on an airplane, I think, for their wedding. So there was a lot of you know, just big, big steps for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. We will talk much more with Emily Bone Cohen, uh, the author of A Member of Two Tribes, comic from a Jewish Native American, and uh, just a fascinating person in general. When we come back in a moment here on Two Jewish. Beit Simcha, the House of Joy, a wonderful Jewish synagogue in the northwest of Tucson and Catalina Foothills, celebrates a great array of services, classes, and events this winter. Established by passionate, caring congregants and me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, Beit Simcha is a vibrant, vital community that strives every day to serve God with joy. Progressive congregation, northwest Tucson and the Foothills, Beit Simcha is open to everyone throughout the metropolitan area, providing weekly Shabbat services, youth and adult education academy courses, social justice opportunities, outreach, and cultural Jewish programming, and lots of Hanukkah. Join us in person for Shabbat services or come on Facebook Live. Go to our website, BeitSimchaTucson.org, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A Tucson.org. We welcome members and guests in our sanctuary. Call 520-276-5675. Religious school is going for school-aged children or grandchildren. Join us in our fabulous Hebrew school, bar and bat mitzvah programs, Torah Tykes experience, confirmation, teen programs, all in a fun, relaxed setting with great Jewish learning. Go to BeitSimchaTucson.org to sign up. Wednesday night, December 21st, the biggest night of the year. Be the light at our fourth anniversary celebration on the fourth night of Hanukkah. Wonderful event filled with song, food, drink, and joy. Sign up soon. Join me and be the light. We have fantastic raffle prizes that evening for sponsors and everybody who attends. Don't miss this great evening. Beit Simcha's services, classes, and events are open to everyone. Come in person Friday night or Saturday morning. Email me, rabbi at B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A Tucson.org or join us Friday night on our Facebook page, Shabbat Evening Celebration Services, 6.30 p.m., Shabbat Morning Services at 10 a.m., all with me, Rabbi Sam Kohan leading them. Facebook page is Beit Simcha Tucson with musical services in 
person and by virtual experience. All of our Adult Education Academy classes are live and on Zoom. You can access those rabbi at beitsimchatusan.org. Our wonderful religious schools available in blended format too. Some students live, some on Zoom. For more information about Beit Simcha to come to services, our great religious school and Torah Tykes programs, bar and bat mitzvah, confirmation, and high school programs, rich array of adult education academy courses taught live and on Zoom, and Hanukkah. Not only the 21st at Be the Light, but virtual Hanukkah menorah lightings every night with me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, and my dad, Rabbi Baruch Kohan. And of course, come to our services in person or on Facebook, BeitSimchaTucson.org, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A, Tucson.org, or call 520-276-5675. That's 520-276-5675, BeitSimchaTucson.org. Join me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, in the fastest-growing Jewish congregation in all of Arizona in its great beginning years, celebrating our fourth anniversary now. If you have a question, comment, compliment, or criticism, kvetch or kvel, please email us at 2JewishRadio18 at gmail.com. That's T-O-O, JewishRadio18 at gmail.com. Or visit our website at 2JewishRadio.com. You can hear all past and present shows through the website, 2JewishRadio.com. Streaming us from there or downloading us from the Apple iTunes Store's very popular Jewish podcast. Top 10 in America, according to Moment Magazine. Over 175,000 downloads on Podbean on Spotify, too. Please post a rating. Review to Jewish wherever you listen to our podcast. Give us five stars or six or seven. Those comments help. The stories we share last a lifetime and are passed down from generation to generation known for our compassionate commitment to the families we serve. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery has faithfully served the Tucson community and the Jewish community for over 100 years. We help thousands of families plan and carry out celebrations of loved ones in unique and special ways and assist them in sharing those lifetimes of stories meaningfully. The most beautiful and tranquil final resting place in all of Southern Arizona, Evergreen's tall pines shade peaceful grassy fields. You can count on Evergreen for superior service and the highest degree of integrity. Our informative, well-trained staff is here to assist you with a full range of on-site services. Call Evergreen, 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470. While we serve the whole community, our experience conducting Jewish funerals, Reform, conservative, and orthodox is second to none. We have sections dedicated to all religious faiths, can help you arrange for your future needs or your immediate ones. Whether you choose to hold a traditional funeral service or a completely individualized ceremony, either in person or online or both, our goal is to help you create a meaningful, personalized service based upon your unique needs in a place of reflection, tradition, and serenity. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery offers the best to the community and to you. Call 520-888-7470. To speak to a family advisor at Evergreen, call 520-888-7470. We welcome our expert on the international Jewish scene, Tom Price. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Rabbi. We've been talking about some of the different aspects of Orthodox Jewry. Um, and in fact, of course, before 
emancipation, you really couldn't talk about Orthodox Jews because all Jews were either Orthodox or unobservant, non-observant. No, you were either Orthodox or you were not Jewish. Yeah, or a bad Jew or something. By definition, if you were Jewish, you lived as part of an Orthodox community and you may not have been as observant as your next door neighbor, but you were still in an observant community. There wasn't anything else. And so after emancipation in the early part of the 19th century, as modern movements began to develop, reform reform Judaism first, and then eventually modern orthodoxy, and then conservative Judaism, and all of this movement towards becoming modern and moving into the modern world, that didn't all happen at once at the same time everywhere in spite of Napoleon. So uh, let's talk a little bit about about some of the places it didn't happen so quickly. No, because Napoleon, in spite of his inflated ego, did not rule over all of Europe. And so he could emancipate the Jews of France or, and they or, were given Venice, full or, right. citizenship. Well, Venice eventually fell to Austro-Hungary. That's true, eventually. And it regressed. Yeah. Yep. So none of that's clear-cut outside of France. And what we mean by emancipation differs slightly from one country to the next because measures put in place against the Jews, starting with the Fourth Lateran Council in the year 1215, were more or less strict depending on the country you were in. So like Jews in the Tsarist Empire were terribly repressed, but they weren't necessarily confined to ghettos by a zealous Catholic church the way they were in Italy and other places. So on its most simple level, emancipation refers to unlocking the Jews. They they could leave the ghettos. They could enter universities. They could practice professions which had previously been forbidden to them. They could own land. Like the law, medicine, things like that. Now, this has an interesting resonance with Sephardic history because Sephardim in the Iberian Peninsula practiced the law and medicine and all these things centuries, a thousand years earlier. And they lived in very enlightened, very modern circumstances, which put most of Europe- For their era, absolutely. Look, in the year 1000, Cordoba had like 400,000 people. London had 40,000. Paris had 20,000. They were mud villages. Cordoba was a splendid city with palaces and fountains and whatever. Sure, so sure. No, it wasn't I, I only relative. I mean, it was absolute. that They were modern and progressive and enlightened and all that. And they were, by and large, emancipated with certain minor restrictions. But the Jews in sort of our Ashkenazic world lived under repressive circumstances and restrictive laws for different lengths of time, because Napoleon at the very beginning of the 19th century emancipated the Jews of France and gave them full citizenship. But then in other places like Austro-Hungary, emancipation came much later and with, frankly, disastrous results because Jews flooded into these professions that had previously been denied to them. And suddenly in places like Vienna, Budapest, Berlin, Prague, whatever, you name it, any big Austro-Hungarian or German city for that matter, suddenly 50%, 60%, 70% of the people in these professions were Jews and their neighbors got scared. And that eventually gave rise to Nazism and the Holocaust. And that's a very Kitsur version, but you're not wrong that it certainly helped spur um, some of the horrifying results of anti-Semitism. And maybe next time we can talk a little bit about 
the places where that emancipation never really quite took hold and where Jews maybe hadn't been confined to ghettos, but, for example, in the Pale of Settlement, where so many Jews were under the Russian Empire, and they never really got sort of free uh, expression. Yes, some got into the professions, but in a virulently anti-Semitic regime like Tsarist Russia, um, never got to the level of comfort or acceptance in society that they were able to accomplish in the Western world. And maybe um, we can talk about some of the reactions that came because of that. I look forward to it. Thanks, Tom. It's time now for our old Jewish joke of the week. Jewish humor, your Bubby and Zadie knew, brought to you by Too Jewish as a public service. Two bees meet in a field. One bee says to the other, how are things with you? Really bad, says the second bee. The weather's cold, it's wet, it's damp. There's no flowers, I can't make honey. No problem, says the first bee. Just fly down five blocks and turn left. Keep going till you see all the cars. There's a bar mitzvah going on, and they have all kinds of fresh flowers there. Ha, thanks for the tip, says the second bee, and buzzes away. An hour later, the two bees run into each other again. The first bee asks, so how'd it go? Great, says the second bee. It was everything you said. There were huge floral arrangements on every table. I got lots of flowers. Great, great, says the first bee. But uh, what's that thing on your head? That's my yarmulke, says the second bee. I didn't want them to think I was a wasp. That was the old Jewish joke of the week. Special feature of two Jewish just for you. You should live and be well. And now a word of Torah. This week, read the portion of Ayeshev, which begins the story of Joseph, one of the great narratives in all literature. We'll continue with this fateful tale through the rest of the book of Genesis and the extraordinary plot lines involving Joseph eventually set up the rest of early Jewish history. But first... Vayeshev starts by further illustrating the exploits, good and mostly bad, of one of the truly spectacularly dysfunctional families in all history, the great patriarch Jacob and his four wives and 13 children. If you thought the Borgia family had problems, if you believe that Oedipus had a bad home life, if you feel the Kennedys were cursed, if you think that the Kardashians, eh, never mind. But for the others, none of these epic familial failures have anything on Jacob and his brood. In fact, you can make a case that the Jacob clan has some of the troubles of each of those. In addition to the vigorous rivalry between the varsity wives, Leah and Rachel, until she dies giving birth to the 12th brother, Benjamin, the built-in rivalries exist between the JV wives, Bilha and Zilpa. The phenomenal sibling rivalries taking place among all the 12 vigorous, manipulative brothers, all abetted by lousy parenting by the patriarch Jacob. Man, there is also plenty of just bad, fateful luck. There are betrayals galore, rape, revenge killing, incest, mass circumcision, mass slaughter, massive deceptions, conspiracy to defraud, and, of course, selling a blood relative into slavery in a distant country. Frankly, this may be the Bible, but this is not conduct we ever want to see in our own families. 
But with all the action of every kind in Vayeshev, there's also a moment of pure fate, an incident illustrating something greater than mere human weakness is at work. Early in this week's Parsha, Joseph is sent by his father to spy on his own brothers. Jacob suspects that the boys, young men by now, have been taking care of dad's sheep, but selling a few on the side to make extra shekels. While searching for his brothers, Joseph gets lost. He wanders helplessly until, we're told, he bumps into a stranger who sends him to find his brothers. When he gets there, he sets in motion events that land him in slavery and prison in Egypt, and eventually that lead to the whole family going down there and the whole people becoming enslaved. And a few centuries later, getting freed, crossing the Red Sea, getting the Ten Commandments, well, the world has never been quite the same since. And yet none of that would have happened if Joseph hadn't bumped into a friendly, anonymous stranger who helped him out. That is, all the turbulence, energy, and activity of Joseph's family would not really have mattered if not for a nameless stranger who sets our story into its true course, one that will eventually end in peoplehood and a great posterity. One simple, nameless guy in the Torah had to point the way. The moral of the story? You never know just what your own small act will do for somebody else, or how and when it might affect history. So, in this holiday season, why not take a moment? Do something for somebody else, even someone you don't know. You, too, might make the world a better place and even shape the future, no matter how well-adjusted your own family may be. When we come back on to Jewish, our guest this morning, Emily Bowen Cohen, tells us what it was like to connect with her own Native American family in Oklahoma as a young adult, how being an observant Orthodox Jew and a Creek Muscogee makes her a member of two tribes in an extraordinary way. Find out when we return in a moment here on Two Jewish. We continue with our Two Jewish update on news of Jews around the world with commentary. Vladimir Zelensky, the Jewish president of Ukraine, was named Time Magazine's Person of the Year last week for galvanizing the world in a way we haven't seen in decades, said the magazine's editor-in-chief. From his first 42nd Instagram post back on February 25th, showing his cabinet and civil society were intact and in place, to daily speeches delivered remotely to Houses of Parliament, the World Bank, the Grammy Awards, Ukraine's president was everywhere, Edward Felsenthal wrote, explaining the choice. His information offensive shifted the geopolitical weather system, setting off a wave of action that swept the globe. Zelensky is just the third Jew to claim the honor in the magazine's almost 100 years of awarding it. Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg earned the award in 2010, and former Treasury Secretary Ben Bernanke won. He was the first one in 2009. Since the outbreak of Russia's war against Ukraine in February, Zelensky has emerged as a Jewish symbol around the world. The former comedian and actor who got his start playing the president of Ukraine in a popular comedy show before he ran for the actual office was glorified for staying put as the violence threatened his life in Ukraine and Russia sent hit teams to try to kill him. 
Zelensky is seen by many as a kind of modern Maccabee. His Jewish heritage is widely acknowledged as historically significant in Ukraine, a country with a bloody anti-Semitic Jewish history. And he and his allies have used his own Jewish identity to dispel Russia's preposterous claims that their aggressive war of conquest was meant to denazify Ukraine. Throughout the war, citing his own Jewishness, Zelensky has also repeatedly called on Israel to break its strategic connections to Moscow and join the wave of Western nations that supply Ukraine with aid and arms. So far, that hasn't really happened. Mazel tov, in any case, to Volodymyr Zelensky. May this be just one more step towards the liberation of his country from Putin's brutal aggression. Just days before news of a planned far-right terrorist plot to overthrow Germany's government stoked fears about the rise of extremism, government officials in Germany approved the first-ever program specifically designed to fight anti-Semitism and promote Jewish life. Approved last week by the whole German cabinet, presented in Berlin by Felix Klein, Germany's commissioner on anti-Semitism, the National German Strategy Against Anti-Semitism and For Jewish Life recommends new actions that should be taken on political and societal levels. The plot, foiled last week, was organized by a group inspired by QAnon conspiracy theories and far-right kind of neo-Nazi ideology espoused by parties growing in influence all across Europe, including the AFD in Germany. At least 25 people, including a former parliamentarian and former members of German special military forces, were arrested in 130 raids. The group, comprised of a widespread underground network, aimed to attack the Bundestag, Germany's parliament. A rise in the number of neo-Nazis and other extremists in the German military have alarmed officials in recent years. Far-right extremists have been involved in multiple terror attacks, including the synagogue in Halle back in 2019, reported here on 2Jewish. There's been a significant uptick in anti-Semitic crimes across the country up to 2021, although a report this week from a watchdog group showed anti-Semitic incidents, at least in Berlin in the first half of the year, dropped to 450, still quite a lot, from the 574 the year before. The German government's new strategy identifies five fields of action against anti-Semitism, data collection, research, and accurate assessment of anti-Semitism, education as prevention, new approaches to Holocaust remembrance, increasing security, and making current and past Jewish life in Germany visible. The plan is an answer to the European Union's 2021 call to action in which all member states were urged to submit national strategies to combat anti-Semitism by the end of 2022. It's amazing that Germany is now a leader in anti-Semitism. In less prepossessing news from Germany, however, investigators commissioned by Germany's main Jewish organization have concluded that abuse of power and sexual harassment occurred at Germany's liberal rabbinical seminary, and some of it may have crossed the line into illegality. The 44-page executive summary of an investigation initiated by the Central Council of Jews in Germany is the latest and most damning report about the leadership of Rabbi Walter Homolka since accusations against him broke into public view last May. The report concludes structural changes are required to set Germany's liberal rabbinical seminary, Abraham Geiger College, and other related Jewish institutions on a correct footing. 
a significant cause for the emergence of the problems identified by the investigators at the institutions under investigation is the personal misconduct of Rabbi Professor Dr. Homolka in his function as leader or person with great influence, which the investigators are convinced of, they said. Homolka announced last week he will withdraw from all functions in the seminary that he and the German-born American rabbi Walter Jacobs founded in 1999. He also dropped out of running for another term as chair of the Union of Progressive Jews in Germany. A more comprehensive report, including details about incidents in which investigators conclude Homolka and his husband engaged in misconduct, will come out in January, according to the Cologne-based law firm Gerke Volschlager. The preliminary report was welcomed in a joint statement by the Central Council, the German Interior Ministry, and the Brandenburg State Ministry of Science, Research, and Culture. They said they would continue to fund the Abraham Geiger College to the same extent as before until a structural new beginning has been completed. The whole thing was greeted with relief by the former cantorial student whose campaign kicked off the scandal. I think the report and the subsequent documents are a blessed development, Cantor Itamar Cohen said. It seemed to confirm many suspicions which I and others share. It affirms that I did the right thing. It could be the beginning of a new chapter of liberal Judaism in Germany. The scandal erupted publicly in May. Cohen sought help from Jonathan Schorsch, professor at the School of Jewish Theology, dealing with unsolicited pornographic material received from Homolka's husband, who was at the time also an employee of the seminary. The Abraham Geiger College is part of the School of Jewish Theology, which is under the auspices of the University of Potsdam. A German newspaper's report about the allegations and an apparent effort to bury them opened the floodgates for criticism of Amolka from past and current students, employees, and colleagues. Amolka took a leave of absence from the numerous leadership roles he had held with liberal Jewish religious and educational institutions he had helped found since the late 1990s. The scandal has shaken the foundations of modern liberal Judaism in Germany. The new reports suggest that those foundations were weak because they rested on one individual, Homolka himself. Joseph Schuster, president of the Central Council of German Jews, said the report made it clear that Homolka could not continue in his previous roles. The report is the first to emerge from third-party investigations into the allegations against Homolka. A separate investigation by the University of Potsdam, released in late October, found that some of the accusations regarding abuse of power were justified, but did not find any criminally actionable behavior, and thus confirmed Homolka's ongoing employment as a professor. It did not investigate the sexual harassment accusations as Homolka's husband had left his job. But the new report scrutinized those allegations. The investigators said they found 13 specific incidents involving allegations against Homolka's husband. Regarding allegations of abuse of power against Homolka himself, they found a total of 45 concrete incidents. A detailed account of those cases, including responses Homolka delivered last week, will be included in the final report coming in January. More broadly, their interviews illuminated a culture of misconduct at Abraham Geiger College in Germany in which unchecked, unlawful, or arbitrary decisions could be made because of a consolidation of power under Hamulka. He presided over an institution ruled, they said, by a culture of fear, leaving employees and students less likely to express criticism or concerns because of the possibility of reprisals. Boy, what a mess. And that's the two Jewish News of Jews round the world.
The stories we share last a lifetime and are passed down from generation to generation, known for our compassionate commitment to the families we serve. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery has faithfully served the Tucson community and the Jewish community for over 100 years. We help thousands of families plan and carry out celebrations of loved ones in unique and special ways and assist them in sharing those lifetimes of stories meaningfully. The most beautiful and tranquil final resting place in all of Southern Arizona, Evergreen's tall pines shade peaceful grassy fields. You can count on Evergreen for superior service and the highest degree of integrity. Our informative, well-trained staff is here to assist you with a full range of on-site services. Call Evergreen. 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470. While we serve the whole community, our experience conducting Jewish funerals, Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox is second to none. We have sections dedicated to all religious faiths, can help you arrange for your future needs or your immediate ones. Whether you choose to hold a traditional funeral service or a completely individualized ceremony, either in person or online or both, Our goal is to help you create a meaningful, personalized service based upon your unique needs in a place of reflection, tradition, and serenity. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery offers the best to the community and to you. Call 520-888-7470. To speak to a family advisor at Evergreen, call 520-888-7470. Be the Light is coming up fast. The best Hanukkah party in Southern Arizona features gourmet latkes, elegant appetizers, delicious drinks of all kinds, Hanukkah menorah lighting and songs, fourth anniversary cake and desserts, dreidel games, a raffle with fabulous prizes, elegant Hanukkah musical entertainment, and much more. Join us Wednesday night, December 21st, for a fabulous celebration of the fourth night of the Festival of Lights and Congregation Beit Simha's fourth birthday celebration. There will be catered food, fun, and frolic. Be the Light is the best way to rejoice on Hanukkah this year. Go to BeitSimchaTucson.org to sign up for Be the Light and make it a wonderful Hanukkah in person this year. That's Wednesday night, December 21st at 6.30 p.m. at BeitSimcha.org. Celebrate and enjoy, and this Hanukkah you can Be the Light. We welcome back to Two Jewish, our guest this morning, Emily Bowen Cohen. She is uh, quite literally a member of two tribes, Creek and Jewish, um, uh, an artist of accomplishment, an author of the book, uh, A Member of Two Tribes. And uh, I guess, so would you call yourself a graphic artist? Um, I know you're an artist more generally, but is that a fair statement? I I mean, if you know comics, I would say I create mini comics. So those are like little booklets or zines, they used to be called. Um, but since uh, that's sort of how I began, and I was creating the comics for my kids, actually, who went to a Jewish day school, and I felt like they needed some help sort of explaining their background to, to their, the other students in the class who had never met a Native person before. Uh-huh. So the comics sort of started as an educational tool, I think, primarily, and then grew to be mini comics and excitingly i actually have a graphic novel now coming out in the summer i was thinking you know i get they certainly lend themselves to that um so what was it like knowing two languages that nobody else understood well i actually did not know i i knew neither hebrew nor skogee creek language (laughs) so i dodged the bullet um i since 
as I got older and became more interested in diving deeply both into my Jewish side and my Native American side, I picked up a few things. Um, I learned how to read Hebrew, but I don't really, I couldn't, I couldn't speak it. No, of course I understand, but uh, there's many, many American Jews who, and you, you include, I should note, uh, some Hebrew prayers in your mini comics. Um, it, and I assume that that helped with your kids' day school. That did. <laughs> yeah. My husband is Orthodox, um, and I, was, I grew up, you know, culturally Jewish more than religious. Mm-hmm. Um, and once we started taking our kids and introducing them to Orthodox services and getting more involved in my Jewish side, I really felt like it deepened. It was really helpful for me. It deepened my understanding of Judaism, which in turn um, led me to want to focus more on learning about my Muscogee tribe as well. And the two things, it really worked kind of beautifully to make me understand both my sites better. So uh, t- tell us a little bit about um, Muscogee. Is, a, is that a sub-tribe of the Creek Nation? Can you explain a little bit? I mean, I, our people know maybe a little bit about being a Kohen or a Levy as a sub-tribe, but I think a lot of my listeners are not too clear on uh, Native American tribes and divisions. Of course, of course. I should, I should have led with this. That's all right. You're doing fine. So there's, like, I think there are over 600 federally recognized tribes across the entire United States. Um, so the Muscogee Nation is one of them. And we used to be called the Creek Nation, Right. Um, and we were given that name by European settlers because we um, resided near water. <laughs> but today, the tribe prefers to be called by the name that we call ourselves, which is the Muscogee Nation. So that's why you'll see Muscogee and then in parentheses, Creek. So we're the same. We are the Creek people. And when I was growing up in Oklahoma, we just say Creek. But um, that's changed. And now we go by the Muscogee Nation. You know, it's such an unusual background. Um, I'm sure you're treated as an expert because ain't a lot of competition here, right? Um, do you feel like you're an expert on living in two worlds? Oh, that's such a nice question. Uh, certainly not. I feel like I'm a person who's continuing that work every single day. Um, I have, I, I'm definitely not an expert in being um uh, Native American. (laughs) That's also been work that I've had to do, especially since uh, so few people who I meet have met a Native person. I feel like I really, I I really want to educate, but I feel like I also have to, um, just to explain myself, (laughs) I guess. Um, But I'm grateful because people have been curious about it. Um, and, And as to living, like, from two different places, I, I think it's given me a superpower almost. <laughs> um, it's really allowed me to, when I meet people from other cultures, like it's, I, I just feel like I, I can recognize things from both of my Jewish, my Jewish side and my native side that allows me to um, relate better. I, not better, but relate deeply, I think is what I mean to say. Um, and I think they recognize that in me too. And it's, it's kind of beautiful how I've been welcomed by many different people because they also feel like they have a foot in one place or another. You're developing a novel, as you noted. Uh, it's a graphic novel, I, I assume, of course. Um, it's called Two Tribes. 
What's been the most difficult part about creating that? I am telling the story of a Native American Jewish girl who's 12, um, and she goes back and visits her um, Native American family in Oklahoma. And her, she meets her dad. That's primarily who she's going to see. Um, and I think it was the most challenging to write those scenes um, because I never had those conversations with my father. And they were conversations I deeply, deeply wanted to have. Um, so that was challenging, also very fulfilling, but it was it it felt difficult. <laughs> That's amazing. Sort of imagining the conversations you could have had with your dad. Exactly. Another way, though, it was very um, life affirming. <laughs> like I again, it, it felt like creating that conversation. I had it. So. The thing that occurs to me about the relationship between being Jewish and Native American is we both know a lot about persecution. Um, I has was that is that a realistic appraisal? Is that a connection that existed or exists? Do you think? I'm afraid so. <laughs> uh, I think that's certainly true. You know, certainly um, we went to Sunday school in Oklahoma and we, we learned about the Holocaust and, you know, pogroms. Uh, and, and in, uh, you know, my dad didn't talk about the drill of years. It wasn't like a topic of conversation. Well, sure. <laughs> but we did have artwork in our house, which depicted the trail of tears. Um, a Mississippi artist named Jerome Tiger. We had several pieces of his, I mean, just print. <laughs> but uh, the scenes to me always reminded me what we would learn in Sunday school. And just, I, you know, I, in my mind, I think as a kid, I, I just sort of, that I kind of thought they were Jews too. You know, I knew they were Native Americans, but I was like, but they could also be Jewish. Right. Just seeing that right. Imagery. Yeah. So it, it definitely was a way for me to kind of, I, I felt very strongly from a young age, just from that, just from that imagery. Um, that there was a connection between both of these sides. You know, I've only had, even though I've served congregations in um, Montana and Arizona, uh, I haven't had a tremendous amount of interaction with the Native American community. But when I was in Montana, there was some anti-Semitic stuff that took place in Billings when I was there as a student rabbi years ago. And the whole town stood up for us and said, no hate in our town. And I thought, wow, it was a fantastic story. They made a, a they made a TV movie of the week about it. The guy who played the rabbi didn't look anything like me, but yeah, yeah. But um, I've often wondered if it had been a Native American religious organization that had been attacked, would the response have been the same? And I've thought, I, I don't think so. I, I would agree with you. It occurs to me that it's. Uh, for all of the various groups that have been persecuted uh, over the course of centuries uh, right here in America, I don't think anybody, uh, maybe even including the black community, has had a much worse time of it than Native Americans. Um, do you feel in exploring that culture now, having come back to it really as an adult, that there's sort of still some reckoning to be done, that there's still some damage to be repaired? Uh, certainly. <laughs> I mean, as I said, I feel like I have to educate people every time I meet them um, about my background. And that in itself, I find it's, it's hurtful. <laughs> that, well, like, how can they not know? Exactly. This is so essential to America. And it's just, it's like, 
you know, not something people study in school in a deep way. Um, so I do think there is some reckoning that has to be made. I don't know what the, I don't know what the verb is there, but I do think, you know, with more popular culture um, coming out that even just explores Native American, Native American people today, that's helpful. So I do think it's going in the right direction. <laughs> and I really, I appreciate your, your saying it um, as a rabbi, because I feel like that's something that I don't hear enough in synagogues. It's sort of, you know, the, how the persecution of Jewish people does reflect you know, other, other people's persecutions. And, you know, it's a sad kind of kinship, but... It, it is, but maybe it also humanizes all of us and helps us to understand, as you said, you, you know, your superpower connecting to people who are coming into different cultures, but also understanding that um, in a way that allows for a human connection. Yeah, it's terrible that that's how we got there, but, but it's not a bad place to be if you see people as full human beings because you know they too can have suffered as you did. Yeah. Um, Emily, where can people go to find out more about you, to find out more about work, uh, your work, and also to get your book when it comes out in six months? Yes, thank you. Um, you can go to my website, which is um, member2tribes.com, and uh, my book will be out in uh, August 15th, 2023, and it will be, I think, everywhere. So I hope... I hope it comes across your desk. Me too. Thank you so much. And we'll have to we'll have to get you back on uh, in a while and talk about how successful your book is. Well, thank you. That would be wonderful. Look forward to it. When we come back on Two Jewish, we'll hear about next week's guest. Get a final musical play out. We are the soul of Tucson. We are your neighbors and friends. Our commitment to provide the very best relies on the finest products and services you, our community, has to offer. Together, we make Tucson thrive. When we win, you win. Casino del Sol, the soul of Tucson. Enterprise of the Pasquayaki Tribe. Thanks for being here with us this morning on Too Jewish with me, Rabbi Sam Kohan. Join us next week. Our guest will be Devorah HaKohen, author of the award-winning book To Repair a Broken World, Henrietta Zold and the Founding of Hadassah. Don't forget, join us at Congregation Beit Simcha this Friday night and every Friday night for services in Oneg Shabbat at 6.30 p.m. Saturday morning, 2, 9 a.m. Torah study, 10 a.m. services, Torah reading in Kiddush, live in person and on our Facebook page. And sign up now for the fourth anniversary, fourth night of Hanukkah celebrations. Biggest night of the year, be the light. Go to our website, BeitSimchaTucson.org. Our play out this morning for Hanukkah, starting a week from tonight, it's Michelle Citrin's charming little song, Pass the Candle from Left to Right. That's how you do it. My friends, have a Shavua Tov, a good week, and a week we pray of peace. Tonight we light the Hanukkah candles from left to right. Sponsored by two Jewish radio programs, Tucson, Arizona.